Hello and welcome back to the Pathology Grand Tour. I'm Liv Gaskill and today our tour bus stops at Forensic Pathology. We're joined by Nicole Jackson, who is Associate Medical Examiner for King County in Seattle, and Marianne Hamill, who is a Forensic Pathologist at Jersey Shore Forensics. Nicole and Marion are here to share a day in their lives with us, tell us about their journey to the lab, and take a look at what lies ahead for forensic pathology. Welcome to the podcast. So um, I'm really grateful that you could both join us today. So why don't we start off with, can you just give us essentially an elevator pitch of who you are and what you do? My name is Marianne Hamill. I am a board certified forensic pathologist and I work in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. I also manage and run uh, with my collaborator, Nikki Johnson, the Death Under Glass Project, which looks at histological images of postmortem tissue as art. All right, and I'm Nicole Jackson. I'm a board certified forensic pathologist. I currently serve uh, for the next three days as an assistant medical examiner in Cook County in uh, Chicago, and I'll be relocating next month to be an assistant medical examiner in Seattle. Congratulations. Can you each walk us through a day in the life of a forensic pathologist? Sure, I can go first. I think it it varies so much um, by office and by practice type. So here in Chicago, it's a large office. We have a large, about 18 forensic pathologists. So we split uh, the days down in the post room about equally between us. So you're down in the post room doing autopsies between 11 and 13 days per month. And your other days are either days off or paper days or court days. Um, Here, your typical day starts at 7.30 if you're in the post room. Uh, depending on the caseload, so how many people died within your jurisdiction, um, you have between three to seven cases. Some of those are full autopsies, some are, are externals. You typically get done between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Uh, we have a morning conference where we sit and discuss all the cases of the day as an office, and then an afternoon conference at 1.30. Um, We share photos, uh, pertinent findings, teach the fellows and anybody rotating through the office. And then you have the rest of the day to either dictate your cases or type your cases, follow up on reports. On days you're not in the post room, at least here, you can kind of float in whenever you want to the office. Um, I like to organize my day by starting with, you know, cases that are nearing their turnaround time deadline. Um, follow up on different studies. So your toxicology, your ancillary studies such as viral studies, bacterial cultures, following up with law enforcement, um, fire departments as need be. Um, So that's a quote unquote typical day. Uh, It's why I like forensics. I get bored and so every day is a little different and I don't find myself in that same routine of just going to the office and working a nine to five. I work strictly as a um, per diem physician. So uh, I work at a couple of different offices a few days a month. My day usually uh, goes something like my morgue manager will either call me or I'll check the online list to see how many cases there are that day. Um, I'll usually go in and do autopsies for a couple of hours, come home, and I'll sign out cases. I also have a very busy private consult practice where I do things like um, look at civil cases. I do a lot of cold case work. I do the occasional exhumation. Um, And, you know, a lot of your time is taken up when you're not in the autopsy room and doing paperwork. So uh, 
one thing I like about forensic pathology, like Nicole, I'm a person who tolerates boredom poorly, so I get to do something different every day, and that's that's one of my favorite things about the field. You really never know what you're going to get when you walk in the door. Nice. And then, Marion, before we started recording, you were mentioning how you've been a consultant before on um, Forensics Podcast. Can you tell us a bit more about kind of that outside your day-to-day work? Yes. So... Uh, a few years ago, uh, the producers of the very popular serial podcast contacted me and asked me to review the case that was in question uh, there. And while they didn't end up interviewing me, because the, from, from a forensic point of view, the case was quite straightforward, it was a really interesting experience. And since then, I've been interviewed for a couple of podcasts, like People of Pathology, well, I think you might have been on that one too. Um, and also recently, a podcast called Direct Appeal, which looks at people who may have been incorrectly convicted of a crime. So I reviewed, recently reviewed a case for them. Um, as a forensic pathologist, I think you get a lot of media inquiries. You get a lot of people who want you to talk at their career day. Uh, you know, people, it's, it's, there's a big disparity between the number of people who are actually in the field and the vast majority of people who are interested in the field. If I had a nickel for every time somebody said, I wish I had become a forensic pathologist, I could have paid off my student loan a lot faster. So I have a theory that there's more forensic pathologists on TV than they're actually practicing in the United States right now. So from both of you then, I guess, why do you think that is? Why do you think there's such a big disparity? Uh, Why there's a big disparity, like why there aren't enough of us? Well, I think, you know, if you rewind to why there aren't um, every year, we have less and less people matching into pathology. And part of that is our medical training system. So if you rewind decades ago, pathology um, was taught differently. It was integrated in the curriculum. Um, And now we're to a point people barely experience pathology in medical school. It's not a required rotation like surgery, medicine, OB-GYN. So there's limited experience and interaction with it. And without interacting, you know, we're the the people behind the scenes and people don't really know what we do um, at all. And so, um, and unfortunately, even people that get into pathology, I found, um, unfortunately, some of our colleagues discourage people from going into forensics. Um, Part of that is based on their own experience with autopsy in their training. I was fortunate to have an excellent uh, in-service autopsy experience um, where they really value the autopsy. We had two dedicated autopsy uh, pathologists, whereas a lot of other places you have people who are either not interested in autopsy that are forced to cover the service or people who are interested, but they have to, you know, spend their time also covering other services, though they don't have enough time to devote to it. And it really diminishes the value of that experience. So people can come out with a nasty taste and then kind of pass that forward to future generations. Um, I think people don't understand um, a lot of things. So one, people talk about the pay. It's not good pay. Well, depending on where you are, it's pretty good pay. We also tend to have pretty good programs that people don't talk about and people aren't aware about. Um, We have consultation. You can be, you can get teaching stipends, you can get research grants. So there are a lot of ways to supplement your income. Also, we tend to work less hours than your average academic pathologist. So it is a trade-off, but you can make more money depending on your own interests. Um, and then I think people think we're the weirdos in the basement. And, you know, a lot of what we do, we're, we're providing closure to families. 
you know, we're meeting with them on, you know, one of the darkest days of their life. Um, there's a justice element to what we do, um, speaking for the dead. Um, and so I just think we need more exposure and we need more exposure earlier. I would point out also to build on what Nicole said, there's also a huge public health component to what we do. Um, the reason we know that drug overdoses went up 30% last year is because pathologists filled out death certificates at the medical examiner's office correctly. Otherwise, there's only two places where you're going to get the immediate feedback on what's going on publicly, and that's the emergency room and the medical examiner's office. Uh, you know, I think, Nicole, I think you'll agree with me. I could have told you there was a fentanyl problem a long time ago before that hit the press. Absolutely. <laughs> Not news to me. Um, but I do think that forensic pathologists aren't valued until someone desperately needs a skilled forensic pathologist to answer a question for them. And then they will burn up your phone. So, yes, we work behind the scenes, but I do think my work is, our work is tremendously important um, for both the living and for the dead. No one is more disenfranchised than dead people. You can walk into a courtroom and say whatever you like about the decedent. They are not there to defend themselves. The only person who's testifying on their behalf is us. So you've talked then about what um, might kind of stop people going into forensics or those barriers, but what made you choose forensic pathology over other specialties? I decided I wanted to be a forensic pathologist when I was 14 years old for no reason that I can discern. And apparently uh, I'm pretty stubborn. So when I was 19, after my first year of college, I did a, uh, spent a summer with the local medical examiner and I like followed him around and drove him to court and held test tubes and got coffee and cleaned instruments. And, and that was pretty much it. I walked into medical school wanting to be a forensic pathologist and I walked out wanting to be a forensic pathologist. I have never seriously considered any other specialty. So I guess that's just the way God made me. Now it's, it's fortunate that it turns out that I have a pretty strong stomach. I like solving puzzles. I like working with law enforcement. I like doing something different every day. So the, the field also appealed to my, uh, you know, my, my strengths and my physiology. I'm not someone who does well without a lot of sleep. And so there's very little call in forensic pathology. I like sleeping in my own bed. Uh, you have to look at it from the point of view, it's something you want to do that also suits you. All right, so my story is a little different. I actually you know, went to med school to be a surgeon, I was like president of the surgical interest group, started surgery at a big cancer center and, and hated it. Um, and then I remember I was on, um, it was a big cancer center. As I said, I was on our colorectal service, which I really liked. And I liked cancer. I found it interesting. Um, we had one surgeon who was a fantastic surgeon, but he would always open the specimens in the OR, which you're not supposed to do. And I remember for one case, just seeing the cancer and being far more fascinated with the cancer and wanting to spend time with that and realizing that was going to the lab. And I would rather be spending my time doing that um, than be in surgery. So this was during my first year and I started talking to my program director who realized I, I wasn't happy. And he said, you know, we can support you transferring to, at this time I was thinking another surgical program, but then I was like, how about not surgery? Um, so I started researching and decided to soap or whatever into whatever open spots were um, available. And it was actually between radiology and surgery. Um, and I had this great phone call with my program director at LSU Pathology, who was one of our, the autopsy pathologists. And we just got to talking 
Um, and I realized I, I wanted to do at least autopsy, if not forensics proper. Um, I told you earlier, I get bored easily. And I think, you know, one thing I'll never get bored of is providing closure to families. And so when I was young, I was about five, my father suddenly died unexpected young healthy guy and that stuck with me and i you know i know how much those families want to know what happened to their loved ones and that's a lot of what we do people don't realize those natural unattended deaths or natural deaths in younger populations we're the ones determining that for the family so that's why i switched so i switched into pathology specifically to do forensics i was distracted i liked almost every rotation in pathology i thought about doing like a private practice general service thing where you also do autopsies and also clinical pathology but ultimately um, I loved forensics. I spent time in our local coroner's office and I was like, oh, this gets even better than the hospital autopsy. And then when I started my fellowship, um, I was like, oh, yes, this is absolutely the field for me. You never know what case is going to roll in. Um, and there's really never a boring day. That's so interesting. Um, so what do you like and dislike most about the field? Uh, so what do I like most about the field and dislike most? So most, I do, I, as I said, I really do like those cases. And I've had a few where the, the loved one dies basically in the ED or is pronounced dead. Um, the ED is kind of painting the picture of a presumed drug overdose. And I don't really know why. And it turns out to be some natural disease the family didn't know about. Um, or... Um, so again, closure to the family. Um, the least thing I think I like, depending on your office, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding of what we do and the value. And so when you talk about the financial support of the offices and the relationships between whether you're under directly under just the city or whether you're under a department of public health or whether you're associated with a medical school, your budget um, and getting people to realize, you know, you need tools, you, you need to invest in our system. And sometimes that can be a very arduous um, process um, that can be tiring. Fortunately for me, that's not my job. That's usually the job of the chief to do that. But um, you hear about it and you see it and affects you and what you do daily. And I wish that would change. I wish more people on a national level um, would understand what we do, would supplement um, us in helping our recruiting efforts with student loan forgiveness and different programs to attract people to this field. Uh, Marianne? Uh, things I like about the field include, uh, I really like solving mysteries and figuring things out. I like the intellectual challenge. Um, I like the mechanics of dissection. I find human anatomy extremely interesting, and I always have. Um, and I like having a job that gives me something different to do every day. That's really important to me. There are people who are, can be, you know, some sort of tertiary specialist that they look at the same thing every day and that makes them happy. That is just not me. Um, the things I dislike are some of the politics within the very limited number of forensic pathologists who are practicing. Um, and I also am somewhat discouraged by the lack of, like Nicole, the lack of recruitment into the field. Um, I do think we need to reach out to uh, pre-med students and medical students through social media because that is how they communicate. Um, and I also think that we need to 
be more forthright about what we actually do. You I know, mean, what I do in the morgue is not supposed to be a secret. Sometimes we treat it like it is. Um, and I don't think that necessarily needs to be true. I think we need to be very forthright about the, the you know, how interesting the field it is, but also how, how difficult it can be and what exactly is going on in that mysterious liminal room. It's a great segue into my next question, actually. Um, can both of you tell me um, about your most memorable case? Um, so my most memorable case, it was this young man, uh, mid to late 20s. He was a firefighter. And at the time of his death, his wife was pregnant uh, with their son. And so he was on a training drill. So in Lake Michigan is the big lake. Um, it's Chicago. That lake, people drown all the time in it. Um, and so part of their training is body retrieval. So they put on scuba gear um, that's weighted. They go swim out. They dive and do something and they swim back. So he was on this training drill, swimming back, and he started to sink, which you shouldn't be able to sink if your scuba gear is working correctly. To be able to pull something, it buoys you up. So his coworkers were there. They bring him to shore. They try to resuscitate him, um, but he dies, unfortunately. So I performed the autopsy. Nothing. He was a very, very healthy young man. Organs were clean. Tox was negative. Um, and we were able to secure the scuba equipment. For some reason, they hadn't sent it. And we said, please secure it and send it. Um, and we sent it out for um, professional investigation because I don't know how scuba diving equipment works. And the report came back and there are there multiple issues with the equipment. And so I was able to sign out his death, death certificate, I think asphyxia due to drowning, due to equipment failure and fatigue. Um, and call it an accident. But because of this, um, at first, the county tried to push back and say it wasn't a work-related incident. And I have no idea how they were trying to get around that. But because of that, so by the time the report came out, his son had been born, young, healthy boy. Um, but that son is cared for for a long time by the county. So his education will be free. There are all these benefits that now go to the son. Um, and, you know, that's really helping him, this now single parent. And as someone who lost their dad at a young age, you know, I understand how helpful that is. So that was really meaningful to me to be able to be the small piece that helps protect and help this family. I think my most memorable cases were a series of cases that set off me off in, a, in an interesting career direction. When I was a trainee, for whatever reason, over the course of the year, I think I got 11, something like 11 pregnant women. And the autopsies were really difficult. Many of them were homicides, almost exclusively at the hands of their current performer in the apartment. And I wasn't even sure how to structure the report. Like, where do I put the fetal part? Gynecology, urology, separate part, separate part? I don't know. And when I looked into it, I realized there was almost nothing written on uh, how to autopsy a pregnant woman. And, and very little research. The last major research that was done on pregnant the autopsy of pregnant women was done in the 18th century by a physician named Hunter who wrote a book called The Gravid Uterus. And so that set me down a path of my research interest is now violent death during pregnancy. And I'm really interested in postmortem pregnancy testing. I'm really interested in postmortem fetal paternity testing and autopsy techniques involving these cases. Um, you may also be shocked to find that in some jurisdictions, murder is the leading leading manner of death. Homicide is the leading manner of death for pregnant women, which 
nobody believes me until I show them the research papers. <laughs> um, but I think Nicole will probably attest to the fact that inter interpersonal violence is often overlooked as an aberrant, you know, this is, this is like a one-off weird thing that happened and, you know, it's not, it's not actually a societal problem when it very much is. I guess from an outsider's perspective, then it seems that kind of you're not only, well, obviously a voice for the dead and fighting on behalf of those who can't, you know, advocate for themselves anymore, like pregnant women, but also for the families as well, kind of post-death, um, which is from an, especially from an outsider's perspective, really incredible. So then kind of leading on from that, what does a forensic pathologist, what does being a forensic pathologist mean to you? All right. So to me, being a forensic pathologist, or at least the way my take on what I consider a forensic pathologist is not only someone, a doctor uh, who is trained to properly investigate um, why and how someone died, um, but we also, as we previously stated, we are providing vital public health um, information. Um, and we're really a pulse on what's happening in our community um, in real time. Um, and what's happening in terms of systems fatally failing people, right? Um, so you can look a, a decent percent of any office, you're gonna have unhoused individuals. You know, that's a vulnerable population. As we all know, the drug overdose uh, epidemic that's been going on, COVID-19, gun violence in America, right? These are all public health issues um, that are fatally failing people. So I think, personally, I think we're not doing our full job if we aren't being active in that public health role and really advocating, truly advocating for what we're seeing, um, whether that's on a political level nationally or locally. Um, but I think as a field, I hope we move to a more vocal front about these issues um, because, you know, I see emergency physicians, I see some surgeons taking the lead and I would like to see more of us because I think we have a lot to say about it. Being a forensic pathologist is a huge part of my identity, I'm not going to lie. Um, I think that due to the amount of preparation and training you have to go through, there's sort of no way for it to be anything other than that. Um, but one thing I found I'm unexpectedly really interested in, in terms of identity, is giving people the real story about what it is that I do. I, I don't want to sugarcoat what I do. Um, sometimes it's dirty and messy and difficult and upsetting but it is very rewarding. Um, I run a, an Instagram account that has a lot of followers and I'm shocked at the very deep and very dedicated amount of interest in our field from the general public. When I was in high school and college, uh, let's just say that rolling up to field hockey practice and announcing you wanted to be the county coroner was not necessarily well received. And there really weren't a lot of outlets for me to um, be with other people that had the same interests as me. And I'm really glad that now with places like the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, which is devoted to uh, morbid anatomy or Instagram accounts like mine online, that people can find that there are you know, people interested in death investigation and mortuary school and pathology. And that's, you know, particularly for women, that's not strange or weird. These are necessary professions that there's nothing wrong with being interested in them. Um, and I'm grateful for that. And I hope that that's one way that I can give back to the field is to encourage younger, you know, people who are coming up behind me that there's, there's nothing wrong with being interested in autopsies. 
I guess then you t- touched upon it then, but also you touched upon it um, earlier, where the past few years has seen a growing shortage of forensic pathologists. What do you, why do you think this is and kind of, well, more what needs to be, what do you think needs to be done to increase recruitment into the field? Because like you said, there is this interest there in the public, but obviously they're not going into medical specialties. But what do you think needs to be done to um, increase recruitment? Um, So we touched upon this earlier exposure and exposure earlier. Um, I've been very happy during the pandemic, you know, as we've all been locked in, a lot of people have been basically forced to turn to social media, right, to supplement that in-person interaction. And I've seen a lot of pathology professional organizations step up um, in their recruitment efforts in general and to purposely include forensics. So I think this is an excellent start. I know as a part of a few different open houses, one was for the Association of Pathology Chairs, I believe one was for the CAP and maybe the ASCP as well. Um, And so that's great. And we have these intimate breakout rooms where people could hop around that were interested in pathology and hear about the different subspecialties. So just having us in the room and at the table, big first step. And there are other discussions going on. I know we, I'm of a group that just started the Society of Black Pathologists, and we are purposely um, trying to engage, we're still in the planning phase, but engage outreach efforts to middle schools, to high schools, to undergraduate uh, institutions. I personally think as a Black physician um, in pathology, we need to be reaching out to HBCUs, um, not only to diversify PATH, but this is a huge untapped field. There are over 100 HBCUs in America. I believe only four have medical schools and only have two have departments of pathology. So we need to be, to be creating partnerships with these institutions to increase their exposure, um, to broaden the field, as well as diversify the field. Um, But I'm very happy to see, at least this year, there have been a lot of talk behind the scenes and a lot of activity um, that gives me hope that change is coming. Um, I think the biggest thing about recruiting people into pathology, particularly forensic pathology, is simply pay them more. Um, You know, specialties, a lot of people pass forensic pathology by because it is one of the lower paid specialties, although that is rapidly changing due to demand. I find as a per diem physician that uh, I could cut every day of the month if I wanted to. Uh, it's just there's only one of me to go around. So it's not that there are not jobs and it's not that there's not demand. It's just we don't have a pipeline, as Nicole references, from you know medical school to residency to forensic, forensic pathology programs. And we need to create, that's what we need to create one. West Coast, East Coast, Midwest, you know, one for each. That would be fantastic. Student loan forgiveness would help a lot. Um, you know, if you want people to, to do something, give them incentives. Uh, it's, it's actually not as complicated as many people are making it out to be, in my opinion. I feel like we can't kind of talk about pathology and laboratory medicine without thinking of the pandemic. Um, Nicole, you did touch on it just then, but how has COVID-19 affected your day-to-day work? Oh, buddy, I'll start, I guess. So I started... The pandemic started in my second half of fellowship. Um, So I've had two very different experiences with the pandemic. Uh, So I was doing fellowship out in New Mexico, which was good because their autopsy um, room is large and it's a biosafety level three. So it was already built 
um, for respiratory pathogens because you have the plague is endemic there, um, tularemia, coccidioides. Um, so because of this, unlike many other offices that um, weren't quote unquote kind of safe enough to do autopsies or people weren't comfortable enough, at the time when this uh, virus hit, we were doing full autopsies on every single person we thought potentially died of COVID. So that was interesting because I saw firsthand, you know, the disease manifestations, particularly in the lungs, um, and then some later um, during the pandemic in the brain. Um, but that, of course, increased the workload. Um, it increased uh, the difficulties with our investigators going out to scenes because of current concerns for them um, becoming infected or exposure. Um, the whole protocol of the office changed. You know, you had decreased in-person meetings, just like everybody else, right, went virtual. And I actually signed my contract for Chicago on December 30th of 2019, so before the pandemic hit. So I knew I was heading to Chicago um during the pandemic i was a little worried because chicago was one of the hot spots um and so when i started here i started after the first wave so things had slowed down a little bit um, but one thing our office has adopted and we're still doing as part of the public health um, response um, by cook county we have taken on signing all death certificates potentially related to covid of not only people that are dying in the community so at home or on the streets but also in nursing homes in the hospital. And so we divvied that responsibility up initially between all the assistant medical examiners and the chief and the deputy chief. So you had about two days per month um, that should be your paper day, but instead you were doing these chart reviews of people who died in the hospital. So it wasn't bad when I started in July, you would have maybe five people potentially dying of COVID, but I remember, goodness, in the fall, you would sit and literally have 70 to 100 cases just rolling in of people dying in the hospital and the nursing home. Um, probably one of the most depressing things I've done um, because you're seeing the same family die on the same day. You're seeing the physicians having the same conversations over and over again with adults that are about to lose their parents. Um, spouses that are about to lose their spouse, uh, parents that are about to lose their children. Um, so that was really, that was bad. And it's also decreasing from your other work you have to do. And then indirectly related, so you have the record reviews, you have um, the people coming in that you have to rule in or rule out COVID. And what we did here, um, we would do nasal swabs, not open the body. Um, you would do x-rays of their chest and kind of hold for the result. Um, if they were older, we would release the body. So if it's like a 70-year-old with a ton of medical disease, we would release the body so they can have whatever burial service or cremation they wanted. If they were younger, we would hold those. So if the swab was negative, we would convert them to a full autopsy. But then on top of this, you had all these indirect effects of COVID, right? So people are not going to school. People are staying at home. People are out, you know, more people are out there, more accidental deaths. Uh, homicides shot up here. I believe we had a 40 or 50 in, uh, increase in homicides between 2019 and 2020. Um, overdose deaths increased 50%. And part of that was the drug supply that changed, just like lumber supply changed and everything. Um, so work has exponentially increased here. 
Uh, right now, COVID deaths are down, but the homicides have not stopped. The overdose deaths have not stopped. So directly and indirectly, uh, this pandemic has exponentially increased our work. I think the good, one of the good things, it, it it's highlighted how much we've, we're needed. And so like one of the responses, I believe the county is approving uh, more positions here. Um, if you look at offices around the nation, a lot of the salaries have been boosted significantly um, because they recognize at least a little more so the value of what we do and how necessary we are. So in contrast to Nicole's offices, the offices that I work in were not uh, autopsy and COVID deaths. And, but yet we were still overwhelmed from the point of view of space. Um, all these bodies had to go somewhere, so we ended up with refrigerated trucks in the parking lot. Um, you know, crematoria were backed up for months. You know, for funeral directors to pick up a body and, and get it cremated, they were going to other states. Um, we saw a big increase, a huge increase. Is similarly that drug overdoses shot up and have not come back down, and I've also seen a big increase in novel fentanyl analogs and the toxins I've been getting back. Um, the other thing I saw a lot of that was difficult to process were people who died at home of things, especially during the worst of the pandemic in New Jersey, um, because they either couldn't get EMS to come get them to take them to a hospital, you know, non-COVID related causes of death, or they didn't want to go because they were afraid that they would contract COVID there. Um, or, you know, a lot of heart attacks that weren't treated, a lot of COPD exacerbations that people died at home at home of, I've also seen a lot of people who probably have conditions that should have been treated but weren't because they couldn't get a doctor's appointment during the worst of COVID, so their conditions advanced quickly. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of trickle-down effect from this. Um, I don't know if this is true for you, Nicole, but we have a lot more unclaimed bodies, it seems, than we used to. Uh, I don't know if people are just running out of money to, to claim and cremate a body. But yeah, this is gonna these these trickle down effects are gonna go on for a long time. We're not done. So, just my last couple of questions then. Um, what is the biggest misconception about forensic pathology? What key thing do you want other lab professionals to know about the field? That we don't like people. We're actually a really chatty, friendly bunch because if you think about it, we spend most of our time either cutting bodies or talking, talking, talking. I go to court and I talk to jurors, I talk to the police, I talk to families, I spend a lot of time on the phone, uh, I talk to lawyers. So we're, we're actually a very friendly bunch of people once you get to know us, we just have an unusual amount of work. Let's see, one thing I hear I think from more, people more in academic pathology when they dissuade people not to go into forensics, they say, oh, it's not an intellectual field. And I would counter that the amount of information we have to collect, um, aggregate, and then analyze to determine how this one person died. Now, it's not just the autopsy, it's their life, it's the events preceding deaths. Um, you have to have knowledge of every organ system, everything that could kill somebody. Then you also have to know like what lawyers might try to say on the sand and trip you up. You have to know so much and you have to be able to be skilled enough to relate that um, to families to people in the courtroom. So it's a, it's a very intellectual and analytical field and very rewarding. And just finally then, what advice would you give to students or early career scientists aspiring towards a career in forensic pathology? 
get yourself an internship in you know the local coroner's office or the local medical examiner's office because i think forensic pathology is something you will not know if you are suited for it until you actually try some people walk in the morgue and they say this is the place for me some people walk in and say this is not what i thought it was this is this is just not the right place for me and that's okay um i've never had anyone vomit in the morgue but i have had several people faint and a few leave at speed um everybody has a different reaction and you kind of have to test that out in yourself don't assume that you don't assume that it's not for you until you try i agree a hundred percent with that um i would add i guess once you know you want to do forensics um, I wouldn't worry so much about getting experience in forensics because when you get to a fellowship, you will learn what you need to know. So in med school, if you know you want to do forensics, you know, really pay attention on all your, your clinical years, on your ward, see disease, disease, see how disease presents, understand how surgeons, why they do what they do, how they write their reports. And then when you're a pathologist, you want to have a solid, broad foundation in all of pathology and just focus on being a good general pathologist and then just trust that once you get to your fellowship um, you will put the time in and people will put time and energy into you and, and help train you to become a solid forensic pathologist. Some great advice there. So thank you both um, for joining us today. Just before we go, um, do you want to kind of mention your socials, uh, you know, where people might uh, be able to find you once they listen to this podcast, if they want to find out more about the work that you're doing? You can find me at Twitter and Instagram as Death Under Glass. And you can find me on Twitter at Nicole Jackson, MD. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.